Welcome, my friends, to another exciting, potentially career-ending episode of the Everyday Missionary Podcast. This is episode 203. Don't worry, I'm not really going to have a career-ending podcast. But we are currently in a little mini-series, a micro-series, dealing with... Uh, the purity culture, the effects of the purity culture, and probably from that, trying to figure out how we can move forward as an evangelical Christian community where we are esteeming the truest types of purity and not sometimes the monolithic versions of purity that we have sometimes cleaved to in times past. And in that, what we want to do is make sure we're not going down roads where we're creating extra baggage, extra burden, extra shame, extra guilt, extra anticipation of things that may be more fiction than reality, uh, that we can have a healthy relationship as followers of Jesus talking about things of sexuality so we can work through the baggage in our own lives as well as we can bring up the next generation in such a way that is practically, pragmatically, and biblically helpful. And yes, all of those practical, pragmatic, and biblical all really do matter in the subject matter of sexuality. It's just the reality that we have to kind of embrace with some of that. So, um, that's why we're going going down this road. And as we do this, I, I want to let you know, as I said last week, all of this is a primer. In other words, I'm not trying to pretend like this is going to be the be-all, end-all on the subject. I'm also not trying to say that everything I say is going to be in agreement for everybody that listens or watches. Um, far from it. That's not my thing. But I want to at least put us in a place that says, you know what? Yeah, I should think about that. And in the end, I don't have a problem if you're like, I disagree with Matt. I don't think he's right on this. But at least you've processed it through and you process it through in a way that is honest and authentic and is not running from the uh, uncomfortable elements of all of this uh, and really is trying to figure out not just God's best, but a way in which we help others own for themselves God's best more than we try to press upon them God's best. And in doing that, we use guilt and shame and devaluation in the process because we think that those types of things might get the job done. If there's anything I've learned from the Bible is that law incites sin and grace incites relationship. And we're always better to use grace to incite relationship than law to incite sin. I don't know why God wired it to where he said, you know what? I said, don't do it. It makes you want to do it. But that's what it says. It says it in Romans 7, as clear as day. The law is there to make us want to break it. That's why the law is slavery. That's why the law is death. That's why the law is curse. And so when we talk about things like the purity culture, if we use a lot of law, it tempts A, and then B, it doesn't really give any kind of grace solution in the event of any kind of failure. And the failure is broad, right? This is what we talked about in the last episode. The failure can be as broad as engaging in something outside of marriage as to not engaging inside of marriage, right? And then there's the thought life and the heart life and everything else and the way we teach and how we use shame and guilt, manipulation and fear. All of that can be all kinds of sin connected to trying to maintain purity, that's the odd word, awkward, kind of weird thing about this is sometimes we can be very impure, ungracious, and unforgiving that we can apply, again, values and, and worth in ways that really undermine purity for the name of purity. That is the reality of legalism sometimes. It's trying to honor God in godless ways with godless rules that drive people further from God, whether it be in heart or in actual testimony, than it does draw them to God. So that's kind of the heart behind dealing with this whole thing. Now, before I get underway today, 
And again, I still don't know how many episodes this is going to be, but I do think my wife is going to join me in one of these episodes because uh, I think it's going to be so valuable to actually hear from women on this and not just dudes because dudes are always trying to drive the ship. And as we'll learn today, that sometimes has some problems too. But before I get to that, a couple of uh, housekeeping things from last episode uh, that I wanted to touch base on. The first was I was having a conversation with my daughter this week about the purity ring thing and how she wouldn't do it, even though we did it as parents for our kids and everything else. And she's like, Dad, I want to maybe clarify. She goes, my experience with that wasn't a bad experience. She goes, I was, I had a good experience with the purity ring concept that you all did in, in our lives. She goes, but here's why. She goes, it wasn't just like, here's a ring. Here's one talk on the birds and the bees. You want to save it for marriage. And then after that, go do it. She goes, you guys didn't do it that way. You literally, since the time we were little, little, sex was a regular conversation in our home, creating a level of comfort around discussions of sex, sexuality, uh, detailed things on sexuality, not just how the biology works, but how the, the emotions of it work, how the passions of it work, and openness about it, and openness that mom and I do this kind of thing. This is why we want private time. This is why we want to go on trips. This is why the door is locked. Like She's like, you guys so immersed us in that topic, it wasn't a no, don't, quiet, shameful thing until you're married and go do it. And then it's all weird because your conscience is not caught up with the reality of what you're allowed to do. She's like, no, because you guys were so often celebrating this and discussing this, then that, that was the strength part. The strength part wasn't the ring necessarily. It's that you guys made sure to talk of it in a healthy, constructive way where it wasn't all of the kind of, oh, bad, hushed, you know, let's wait till you're older to discuss it. No, she goes, it was just a common thing all the time. And it made then my going into marriage much better because, as she was saying it, because I not only, quote, knew what to expect, I knew what was okay. I knew that the limits were very, very few when you're in the context of marriage. I knew all of the details of all the ways that this can be expressed and explored, um, both in ways that are fun and vivid and thoughtful and invested and all of that. So she goes, for me, it was good. But for many people I know, it was not like that at all. And that's in part what made their experience with the purity ring so bad. And then she just goes a step further and says, and I don't think you need a purity ring to seal that deal. I think you just need to make that the the climate of your home. And from that, a ring doesn't matter. And I agree with her because here's the thing about that. Um, in the end, if the individual is deciding a thing for themselves, that's the greatest binding force, right? More than a bunch of lockdown things or a symbol that seals that, it's the individual having an ownership of a concept because if they want that for their life, whatever that thing is, that's what they're going to seek. If they want to have certain boundaries, but they've created the boundaries, they're going to be the ones that maintain those boundaries. And if they have not owned those things, they're not going to do those things. And there's nothing we can do as families or parents or mentors or guides to change much of that. There has to be a thing of almost greater exposure saying, I'm not going to make some things taboo and off limits and other things we're going to discuss, like expose them to the whole reality of things. And then from that say, and here's why we think there's a value that goes this route that's different than a value that goes that route. And this is why we think it would be really great for you. And then from all of that information, they then own the things that they are going to own. And so I think that's part of that. We want to keep 
keep in mind that that is our greatest ally. It's not trying to create more rules and laws and standards. They're going to try to hold people accountable to things that they may not have agreed to, but rather it's to be compelling agents. And I think part of that compellingness is saying, hey, we think that God's got a great vision for life. And hey, if you don't live up to that vision, that doesn't define your value and your worth because God is a good and loving God that understands our human failure, understands our temptations. Jesus was tempted in every way as we were, yet without sin. And therefore he says, come to my throne of grace and you will find grace and mercy in your time of need. Jesus doesn't use shame regarding our failures. We shouldn't do it as well. And so you want to have, again, a climate that says, hey, here's an ideal. And if we miss the ideal, there's still grace. There's still home. There's still forgiveness. The father is standing there waiting for the son to come home and he throws a great feast. Like that's the heart we should have on this topic. So that's one thing I wanted to talk about just from last podcast to this one reflecting on what I said last time. The second thing is I had a really dear friend of mine reach out and say, you know, I did the purity ring, but I did it as a high school student because it was talked about in our youth group. And I took that on for myself. I wanted that for my own life. That wasn't so much what I was talking about, obviously, last week, because I was talking more about how parents kind of decide to put their kids into the realm of a pledge that the kids aren't really making as much as the parents are kind of just applying the pledge to their kids and then holding them accountable to something the kids didn't necessarily agree or disagree to, because often it happens in an age that they're pretty uh, susceptible to going the route of the parents on some things, right? So that's kind of part of that. Uh, but this person said, no, I chose this for myself. And then on the day of my wedding, I gave my purity ring to my husband and, and that was my gift to him. And I go, man, when an individual chooses a thing, as I just shared, that's the best thing. That's the strongest thing. Personal ownership is about the only thing will cause anybody to follow through on their convictions or commitments or whatever. It doesn't matter what it is, right? If it's getting healthy, losing weight, finishing school, you name it, it takes personal ownership more than some outside force trying to apply an ownership to you. And so I think for the people that said, you know what, I'm making a pledge to myself, men or women alike, doesn't matter, that I want this in my life. I want to wait till the day I'm married to do this thing. Then you know what? That's awesome. That's not the same as kind of the purity culture. Now, it may be influenced by the purity culture in some ways, and we'll get into that a little bit today and in the subsequent episodes. But both good and bad ways, right? It can be influenced in those things. But, But for the person that says, I want this for my life, right? Because I, you know, I have this walk with God. I see the Bible in this way. This is what I desire. Um, I think that is positive, good, healthy, wholesome. I'm 100% behind it. So just wanted to also clear that one up a little bit because I was talking more about how we did things as parents more than how individuals chose things for themselves. So a little bit different. Also, one last thing, and then I'll get into the topic of the day because by then we'll already be eating up 15 minutes and then I can't get myself in that much trouble. So, uh, but I had somebody also say to me, you know, this culture really began back in the 60s and 70s, the purity culture in the context of the church. Uh, and then it was just more codified in the 90s. And I totally agree. Part of this whole series of podcasts is I'm not wanting to really do this from the perspective of the history of the purity culture. I'm trying to enter into where we can probably affect the best positive change now, which really then goes back to the stuff of the 90s and takes us up into today. But I agree that really when we had kind of the the, the hippie movement and we had the free love movement and we had the feminist movement, those kinds of things, which by the way, I am not vilifying any of those right now. I'm saying when those things went underway, then the church's reaction to those things was to establish a type of purity culture at many levels, right? So uh, a little bit more of um, uh, kind of a patriarchal defense 
defensiveness when it came to family, certainly on sexuality, countering the free love movement and all of those things. And so that certainly took root in the church. And I, being a product of youth ministry in the 80s, purity was a big thing. Certainly, but this idea of manuals and books and curriculum and rings and pledges and contracts and all of those kinds of things, that really found its life in the 90s. Um, and I think on the heels of things like uh, the Clinton uh, sex scandal and things like that, there was more of this, like, we got to make sure that our defining mark as evangelicals in our culture is sexual purity. Now, the irony of that is just how much sexual calamity has been in the church through that entire time and particularly exposed since the 90s and to today, which is why I'm, again, going back to personal ownership more matters more than the rules and standards and expectations we apply to people because if they don't own being pure, they're not going to be pure. And all the more when we start applying like truly pure people do it this way and impure people do it that way, those who are struggling with impurity are never going to come to the pure people and say, I need help because then they're going to get judged and they don't want that. And so they don't seek help and they go darker and deeper and further into the things that they shouldn't do. And that's bad. And what I'm talking about there are people who took advantage of kids, who took advantage of uh, uh, people in the church that they were supposed to be shepherding and leading. And instead they were um, trying to seduce and woo. Um, I mean, we've got a a slew of sexual scandal in the evangelical church in the last 25 years. Trust me. And I think that goes back to the dark side of the purity culture where we're like true value is purity. And if you're not being pure and you struggle with porn or you struggle with lust or you struggle with whatever your thing is, um, you're tempted to, to, to want sex in some way, but you can't come forward on it because the purity culture will look down on you on that. Then we just create more of the problem. We drive an underground and it festers in different ways. And that's so oftentimes part of the challenge as well. So Lots of stuff I was deciding to untangle there before we even get into the subject of the day. But this is why last week was so much about we need to educate more than we need to just say, let's just be ignorant and pretend like it doesn't exist. Um, no, we need to just face these things head on and try to address them. And so again, my heart is not to be the be all end all and give the answer for everything and say the way Matt sees this is the way you should see it. That's not my thing. My thing is simply to say, you need to look at it and you need to be honest about it. And you need to be in some ways, especially if you're in that... 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 age bracket, you need to put yourself back in the shoes of a single person for a little bit and be like, okay, what were my struggles then? What did I face back then? Why was the, why were those things hard? Um, what is some of the baggage I'm dealing with from the, those periods in my life? Whether it might be the baggage of saying, you know what, I was a super prude and then I got married and I got freaked out or, you know, I was a little bit more freaky and then I wanted to try to be a prude and it was hard or, you know, whatever, else. you know, like, like, let's just be honest in our humanness about this too, because what God cherishes is truth. And God doesn't dig lies. The lies we tell to ourselves, the lies we promote as a community of faith, uh, when we're not honest about who we have been or where we have battled um, or where we still struggle, like if we're not honest about that, that's a lie. And God's no fan of lies, right? Um, He can't do it, doesn't dig it, doesn't want us to do as well, wants us to be honest about these things. And so on this topic, there needs to be a certain level of honesty about these things. And this even goes back to a podcast they did months ago on kind of being pro-life. And one of the things I brought up in there, and you look at the statistics, the majority of abortions in the United States happen with women of faith. And I know that freaks out people of faith because they go, I don't believe those stats. I can't think that's true. But the reality is 
the, the, the percentage, the majority. I don't mean some strong majority, like 90%. What I'm saying is the majority, it's somewhere between the like 53 and 60%, I forget exactly where it lands, are people that come out of traditions of Catholicism, evangelicalism, whatever else. And I'm telling you as a pastor, all the issues I've dealt with over the 30 years of ministry have been Christian evangelical women who were maybe teenagers or whatever else, different things, and they got pregnant. And because of the purity culture and the purity culture said, you got pregnant, you're now damaged goods, you're spoiled, you're deflowered, you're soiled. They went and pursued abortion so they didn't have to deal with the social baggage of being seen as a lesser individual, that their value quotient dropped because of their pregnancy. So they went and terminated their pregnancy so they didn't have to face the value drop in their social framework. And so, again, part of this, I go back to the dark side of the purity culture, is that there was a good many people who didn't live up to the purity standard and then pursued abortions so they didn't have to deal with the social backlash. These things are what we have to address. That's even why I said education's good because so many of these people, they weren't even educated on trying to prevent that. If they're going to take that step, they didn't know any other steps to take and taking the step that they were going to take. And then it just compounds the problem and they have a greater consequence on their hands now. And so this is where I know for some of you are like, I'm, I'm punching out right now. Matt's talking about educating our kids on being aware of, of maybe precautions they want to take if they're going to engage in sexual activity. I, I want to be clear on this right now when I say that. I'm not saying it because I'm, I'm like, hey, let, that's an endorsement. I don't think it's an endorsement. You're not handing your kid a box of condoms or whatever else and saying, here you go, and just in case, you know. But what I'm saying is you will want to educate your kids because they have to want certain things for themselves. And if they're not going to choose that path, you at least want them to be sort of intelligent sort of responsible so that the consequences aren't even greater or more challenging for them. And so again, I don't think by educating them in things that you may disagree with that that's an endorsement. I think that's just trying to apply a certain level of insight and reality and wisdom to the world that they're living in. And you want them to be more knowledgeable instead of less knowledgeable, right? So again, I don't think knowledge is endorsement. I think knowledge is just knowledge, but you can sit there and still have an ideal that you would hope for with your kids. You can give them a sense of vision for why you see that ideal as the best ideal. And you want to then kind of coach and teach and train to that end, but you want to make sure they're also in the know about things. Like I think that's just a valuable thing in today's world. And again, coming at it pastorally and just how many people... Uh, especially when I was in student ministries, just how many people have come and said, I can't tell my parents or I can't tell. I mean, you know, so there's just, we're always going to do better as parents to let them know more, not less, even if some of the more we're sharing, we're uncomfortable with. I got it. We're all there, right? But we also want to be kind of real in a real age with real challenges. And when you have a real hookup culture and that culture is just as true to those who claim Jesus as those who don't, knowledge is good. All right. So that is a lot of housekeeping for the beginning of a podcast where I haven't even touched the topic of the day. And so I'm going to pivot to the topic of the day, which is chauvinism and egalitarianism. Yes, I want to talk about that. Now, this is the episode really that would be ideal to have my wife in, but I actually think what I want to do with her is a little different. It's going to be a catch all of things, kind of a pick her brain on things. 
But part of this whole thing even is indicative of what I've shared that so often on this topic in the context of evangelicalism, it's men leading seminars, men writing books, men leading video things, men teaching youth groups, men teaching churches, men teaching whatever. And so I do think there is a huge value in hearing from women. And part of the reason is is I think a lot of the purity culture, if you really unearth it, it had a lot more emphasis on we need to keep our women being modest and pure and chaste, ready, for the sake of our men. Now, some people, this is where they're going to click it off, right? But but there is a level of that. Like, we need the girls to be pure for the sake of our men. Now, here's a little bit of an etymological uh, tangent here for a second. But even if we look at virginity, we'll talk about a man's virginity and a woman's virginity. And that's sort of uh, off the rails instantly because virginity is a feminine root that goes back to the idea of a young maiden. Virgin isn't a male concept. Virginity wasn't thought of in male terms. It's a concept that goes back to, we want to keep our girls pure. And even in that, part of the teaching that would happen is like, hey, when you marry a girl, you want a virgin girl. And there was a little bit more of the the value of a virgin girl is higher than the value of a virgin guy. Now, we wanted our boys to stay sexually pure, especially in relationship to porn, right? Because porn has its own set of of problems and expectations and 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 frankly I my biggest issue with porn is the 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 devaluing of human beings both male and female in those depictions both are highly devalued much of the time certainly the women are devalued much more and so just kind of a human dignity and worth element is so extracted from pornography that's the deeper sin of pornography in my personal estimation it's not there is these sexual acts taking place or depictions of sexual acts I think so often we see sexual impurity as the act that's so destructive and I go no it's usually the devaluing a human being It's the sense of it's about me more than it's about you. I'm taking more than I'm giving. Um, I'm putting my purient interest and cravings ahead of maybe what is going to be best for you or best for others around me or whatever else. Like all of that stuff. It's the lack of loving your neighbor as yourself that is so often part of the problem of some of the the sexual sins that the Bible is describing or discussing. You even see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where Paul's like, I I want you to be holy and that means don't take advantage of your brothers and sisters in sexual ways. That idea of holiness and purity and sexuality seems that Paul is more concerned not with this physical action that happens between individuals. He's concerned with the fact that it's not love or loving or caring or investing. It's it's taking, it's robbing, it's whatever else, right? It's not showing honor to other people. And this is that under deeper thing of areas of sin is so often it's not about loving God or loving our neighbor. It's about loving ourselves more. And that topic is certainly there. And pornography certainly highlights that both for the consumer pornography that's doing this for themselves and for those who are being used in the pornography industry where their value and worth is is brought low because they're being exploited by people for money or whatever else. And so that's the problem there. But with our girls, with our girls, it was much more like we want them to, to not be soiled. We want them to not be deflowered. And you already hear the value system in that kind of concept, right? So we need to protect them as chaste uh, young maidens, literally virgins. Um, 
And we're going to create a terminology that's mostly rooted in keeping them pure and modest because a man wants to marry a virgin. And therefore, instantly, for the girls who go into marriage and they're virgins, there's this sense of they have greater value. They're gold, right? But the women who did not make it to their wedding day in that state, they're not gold. They're used. They are sloppy seconds is one of the the jokes that would go around. We might say they were trampy or slutty if they had a lot of partners. And so we use words that literally sound like dirty words, slut, trampy, um, soiled, right? Like these ideas are all saying you as a person, now you're dirty because you did this activity. Now, maybe for a second, I should back up. And say, I think there can be a difference between valuing a thing and saying your value is connected to the thing. So I'm going to say that again. I think there's a difference between saying I value a thing and your value is connected to being or maintaining that thing. So I can value the idea of uh, a person on their wedding day, sharing that experience with their spouse. The Bible values that. The Bible says, there's your ideal right there. That's the target you want to hit. Now, in hitting that target, there's no promise that if you wait to that day and and that's your time, that it's going to be mind-blowing, amazing because you saved yourself and now it's kind of like the prosperity gospel of sexuality. You waited and now you get the best version of it. This is one of those problems, again, we've been talking about that that's often not the case and it creates a whole lot of other baggage in marriages too. So we always want to make sure we're talking a lot so it can have a really rewarding thing and everything else, right? That's that's true. But but like I said, there's that, that other element, like if you didn't get to that day in that way, then yeah, like, you know, you, you don't have the value and therefore we're, we're saying uh, the, the value of waiting somehow then equates your value if you didn't or your value if you did. And I think that's honestly part of the broken thinking. So again, you can value waiting to your wedding day, but if you waited to your wedding day, that doesn't make you more valuable. And you can value waiting to your wedding day. And if you did not wait till your wedding day, that doesn't suddenly say you're less valuable, right? That's the difference. So valuing a thing is good. Saying that dictates your value That's bad because there are many people, right, who made decisions over the course of their life, right? Some of which they go, I don't regret those decisions. Other of which they go, I do regret those decisions and everything else. And if we're saying, well, no matter how you see them, your value is less because you had a lot of partners or your value is less because you had one partner and then you got married to a different person or whatever else. Like like that suddenly misses the issue of value. And I don't even think the Bible says the person's value is predicated on whether they were or were not a virgin when they got married. Like I think about Esther. Here's this poor girl thrust into an environment where basically she has to sleep with the king as he's sampling all of the options. And therefore, she has to really go into this with a lot of gusto and vigor and passion and excitement. And this is like for her, she doesn't even know this dude, right? But she knows she's been coached. You got to be the number one candidate in this. And the way you do that is everybody has an audition. 
your addition's next. And she goes into that. That doesn't change her value. We don't look at Esther and go, I know she saved Israel, but you know what? She wasn't a virgin when she got married. That's too bad. In fact, she was kind of playing the role of a prostitute until she got married. That lowers her value. We don't do that. That's not the case, right? So to value a thing does not equate to that's your value. But I think there's this thing, and again, it comes more from kind of men wanted pure wives, and therefore there was always this thing that says, you know, the purity of the woman matters a little bit more than the purity of the man, or our reaction to a woman would be a little bit different than a reaction to a man. So I know a story of a family where the the daughter uh, ended up having sex before she was married. It was in her teen years, and the response of the father was uh, he took the belt to her and called her some of those names, right? Like, now, again, this was a person outside of their character, very, you know, I think a very loving father, probably by all intents and purposes, everything else. Like, that would have been true. But there was this reaction that says, whoa, this happened with my daughter. This is really, really bad. Where when they found out the same thing with their son, the reaction is incredibly different. There was no belt. There was no shaming words. There was nothing else. Uh, It was more like a, I just wish you wouldn't have kind of thing. And so you get a sense in stories like that where we kind of go, the, the, the purity value of the woman is higher than the purity value of the man. So that's one way in which kind of uh, this chauvinistic element versus an egalitarian element comes into it. We feel we need to protect our girls more because we feel their value is more connected to their, their virginity more. And if they don't have their virginity, then their value diminishes. This is problematic, and it's a way that we don't necessarily do that with the males in our world. And so that's one way there is this chauvinism over the top of this topic, and we need to remember, whoa, wait, a person's value is not connected to their sexual activity. Their their value runs much more deep, which is they have the image of God in them. That's where their value starts, and therefore that's where their value ends, is that they're image bearers of God. And all the other elements we want to drag into it uh, become problematic. That isn't to say that we don't want to say things are, uh, you know, not sin or whatever else. I'm not saying you can't say things are sinful or things would be uh, unhealthy according to God's design for our flourishing as people, what obedience brings you versus what disobedience brings you. You can do all of that, but we don't want to make it sound like if you cross these lines, you're no longer valuable or your value is dropped. That one's gold, you're like bronze. We don't want to do that necessarily because, again, we're adding a false dichotomy to the system. And from that, we're loading up a lot of shame. You're not valuable anymore. You're now used. You're now dirty. You're trampy. You're slutty. You're soiled. Again, very clear words to describe your unworthiness and and therefore staying away from that, probably pretty smart. But that's one of the ways where, again, kind of we haven't looked at this as kind of equals. We want to handle men and women the same. No, it was like women we handle this way, men we handle that way. And that's part of the problematic nature. Now, another thing we've done with our girls to protect our men, one was to protect our men so that they can have virgins as wives um, and that kind of thing. That was kind of part of what the spirit of that was. Uh, the next layer is how we said we need to apply modesty to our women to help us not struggle as men. This goes back to that thing of, hey, it's time to go to camp. When we go to camp, the girls have to wear a one-piece bathing suit and they have to wear a t-shirt over that one-piece bathing suit because we don't want the guys to struggle. And so there was always a lot more pressure on the girls to play the role of modesty so that the boys didn't battle. And this was one of those topics for the longest time I have fought against personally, and I fought against it what I would consider to be on biblical grounds. Here's the biblical grounds. Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, 
gouge it out and throw it away. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and toss it out, right? Because it's better to be blind and lame and maimed than it is to give into such sins. So boy struggles with lust. Girl wears a bathing suit to camp. What do we say to the boy? Nothing. What do we say to the girl? Cover up so the boy doesn't struggle. In other words, do the boy's eye a favor so he doesn't have to learn how to divert his eyes. Right? We're going to cover you up so he doesn't have to deal with his struggle or temptation or whatever. And so there is, again, this applied sense of you girls, you have the power to make boys struggle. You have the power to untap their sexuality in ways that are unhealthy and they don't want. So you girls need to behave so that the boys will behave. And that whole thing doesn't even give room for guys to have to learn to deal with their lust. Instead, it says, you know, we'll just come up with ways to protect you out in public so you don't have to learn that. I mean, I remember for the longest time, like, you know, like back when I was in youth group even, where there was those rules, but there wasn't as much talk about like, hey, guys, look the other way. Like, because that's all Jesus is really saying in Matthew 5. Guys, look the other way. It's not, hey, girls, cover up. This happened again with even like the yoga pants. Oh, is it okay for Christian women to wear yoga pants because they might cause cause guys to struggle? And it was like, that. Ah, that's, you know, yoga pants. No, that's bad. Good Christian girls won't do that because they know how tempting it is for boys. And I'm like, or the boys learn and grow to not look at a person in a way that is dishonoring. To not look at girls in a way that is devaluing. Because if there's anything, I think there's real bonus in learning for males here, is that they would look upon women with the value and dignity and image bearing and equality that they have as being image bearers of God. We are made in the image of God. When we look at the women around us, we should look at them through the eyes of Christ. And if we struggle with that, then we need to grow in that, pray through that, work through that, face our temptation in that, look that straight in the face and call it what it is and get better at it, as opposed to, hey, you're in sin now for wearing yoga pants, right? Or you're in sin for wearing a two-piece bathing suit to the river. Like, like again, it's another form of this idea that we're going to say, you're not as godly as a woman if you are not sensitive in your modesty. And then in that, whatever we say is modesty, right? So everybody's deciding for themselves what modesty is. And that's a sliding scale. Now, again, I want to be clear in this. For women, All women are going to have virgins or virgins, versions of their level of modesty. And I think for any female that says, you know what, I just want to be modest in this way. I want to be sensitive to these things. This is what I'm comfortable and uncomfortable with when it comes to where my levels of modesty are. I have zero problem on, on, or I'm not even trying to make an argument with the idea of women choosing their level of modesty. I think Something that's also fair for men and women alike is if they are doing things and they're like, I'm trying to make somebody struggle. I'm trying to tempt somebody in some way. It doesn't even have to be sexual. It could be intellectual. It could be social. It could be whatever. Like if you think your motive is I'm trying to actually cause them to stumble, well, that's on you. But if they stumble, that's on them, right? So that you would have the motive that's your thing to deal with. If they would give in to that, that you might have the motive for, well, that's on them. That's their problem, right? But what we did is we say, no, girls, you need to behave so that the boys will be able to behave. And though therefore, this caused all this other kind of baggage again, you know? And so that girl, she wore a two-piece bathing suit to camp. She's not as pure as the girl that wore the one piece and put the t-shirt on. Or the girl that put up the fuss about having the two-piece bathing suit. She's the one that really is trying to tempt the boys. And 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 so she's a lesser 
quality, godly woman than the one that's willing to cover up and basically wear a burqa at the lake, you know? That, again, is this idea of the, the purity culture creating scales of value and worth, and this is the more dignified, that is the less dignified, and, and this is a part of that thing that we want to address again, because a lot of this goes back to the heart. God is always looking at the heart. He cares about the conditions of the heart and why the heart wants to do what it wants to do, or why the heart feels free in what it's doing, right? This goes back to the gray areas again and the liberties and the idea that one person's conscience is one way and another person's conscience is another way. And both can be right if they're listening to their conscience from a God-honoring perspective. But when we just apply these rules to say the girls need to behave to help the boys, it doesn't really help the boys. And in the end, it doesn't really help the girls as well. And so this is where in all of this, uh, we want to make sure that we understand that whatever rules we're applying, we want to apply to both the males and the females. And we want to do it in such a way that the dignity and value of both is maintained. And in doing that, we want to make sure that we don't make sexual things the highest order and good. And if you don't accomplish that highest order and good, then you're somehow lesser and bad. When I read through the Bible, and this is a quote from J.D. Greer, who I think got it from somebody else, but he made this point of when the Bible talks about sexual things, it whispers in comparison to when it talks about greed or not caring about the plight of the poor or the homeless or the needy or the sojourner, the Bible screams on those things. 3,000 times the Bible talks about overlooking the poor. When you talk about sexuality, you couldn't fill a page with it. So, So I'm not trying to say that the sex issue isn't important. I'm not trying to say that purity isn't worthy. What I'm saying is we want to make sure we keep this in perspective that says this, hey, we cherish the thing. We value the thing. But valuing the thing does not attach itself to your value, especially you ladies of Christ, you ladies in the church, you ladies that love Jesus. And and maybe you've made different decisions, right? Along the female spectrum, different decisions have been made. That should not be like, oh, sorry, now you are lesser. You're lesser. We shouldn't do that. And we shouldn't do that with the men, right? We shouldn't do that either. And we should remember that there is always forgiveness, there is always grace, there is always mercy, there is always compassion, and that you do serve a Lord who knows temptation and he knows weakness, right? And it's all going to be in there for all of us, right? All of us. I I said this last week, we're we're all going to be broken or we're all going to have failed or we're all going to have overshot or undershot on this topic. And this is why we need grace. This is why we need to be compassionate. This is why we need to be thoughtful, And I think for so many of us as men, it's where we need to kind of look and learn and think about our sons and daughters more equally instead of these are the ones we have to protect more than these ones. And boys will be boys, but girls, that's a different thing. And I got my shotgun for that. I've never seen a picture with the dad and his son getting ready to go to prom where the dad's got a shotgun with the son getting ready to go to prom. But I've seen plenty with dads and daughters. You know why? I did that, right? And my little purity culture model, I thought, you know, it's really cool to show that I'm going to protect my daughter's chastity with a gun, but my son's chastity, not going to protect him with a gun, right? This is where there's not equality and purity should be about equality. Sexuality should be about equality. We see this in first Corinthians seven, right? Even in the marriage union, 
Sex is to be about the husband pleasures his wife. The wife pleasures her husband. This is a giving concept, not a taking concept. It's an equal concept. It's not a hierarchical concept. And so from that, we want to kind of think about these things, even as we're raising our kids and working in youth ministry. How do we treat both equally? How do we treat both with value? How, when there's the crossing of lines, do we come alongside and love and heal and care and and lovingly challenge even in whatever ways we need to? And how do we make sure in the context of that, we're making much of Jesus and much of grace? and much of hope and much of restoration and much of joy in the process of that because all of that comes into play. Because if there's any place we need to be everyday missionaries, it's in a culture that is steeped in sexuality. And we don't need to run around talking about how it's all going to hell. It's all decaying. It's all immoral. It's all corrupt. It's all disgusting. It's all gross. Because again, while the topics in some of those areas can very much be morally disgusting and gross, like sex trafficking and abuse of children and all of that, we want to also think about every single person, whether it's the corrupt stuff or just the casual stuff, every single person knows from God's people that they all bear God's image. And yes, God has a best, but but we can't lecture or shame people into the best. We have to model that best. And this is why even the church with all of its sex scandals and pastors that are blowing out because they're having affairs and all the inconsistencies, that's not helping. If we can't own it in ourselves, if we can't have the healthiest form of this, who would want to listen to us, right? This is where we need to own it ourselves. We need to educate more. We need to see this as an equal problem more. We need to care about both sides of the equation more. And we need to figure out how we bring Jesus to bear on all of it. Because when we do that, that is when we are living in the sweet spot of being everyday missionaries.